Okay, join me in your Bibles or the bulletin Acts 10, 23 through 43. I think uh, Cohen identified it as 27 lines today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's pray and then we'll read God's Word. Our Lord, uh, you caused the world to spin to your glory. Even now, as the Lord's Day's activities wind down for for the Wilkes, for Jan, for the Pikes in Kiev or or whomever in, in Europe and Asia, we're in the midst of our own. As your people on one side of the world sleep, we're picking up where they left off. And what a glorious and wondrous thing to see how far and how wide you have carried your gospel. As your world turns, you hear the praises of your people change from one language to another. We ask that you feed and nourish and strengthen us now, even as those who have received your word already today. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts chapter 10, 23 through 43. The next day, he, that is Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the people's prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Martin Luther famously said, and we can all probably recite it together, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand. And I want to suggest today that it is in the most astounding paradox that we find stillness of the soul. Uh, The paradox is that submission to the Lord Jesus Christ brings peace of conscience. That's not really even a paradox, but to our mind, to the mind of man who's inclined to seek out peace through autonomy, through self-freedom, it is a bit paradoxical. The idea of submission seems contrary to freedom and to peace, and to our ears it sounds only like bondage. But why might this be important to us? At the broadest level, um, considering humanity as a whole, the history of society in the world is a laboratory for our examination. And first of all, with regard to God, uh, on what level have we obtained peace with God as, as humanity as a whole? When every religion, aside from Christianity, at its root is a works-based religion. And if we haven't obtained peace with God, we certainly haven't obtained peace with man either. Consensus is no guide for the conscience. Man bickers and fights like little children because we can't agree on the standard of justice or truth. Even as believers, we doubt, we we fight, we afflict one another's consciences, and we're not free from the tyranny of the flesh. But where we have the Lordship of Christ, we have solid ground on which to stand. So we find peace, peace with God, peace with man, and peace of conscience by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the main thrust of this passage, I believe, and I want to direct your attention towards uh, peace, peace with God, peace with man, peace of conscience are to be found in the gospel of our supremely sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. He's building a a kingdom of uh, peace and priests, but a kingdom of peace, and he's bringing us in, bringing the Gentiles in. So the first place I see this principle of peace and submission is in the way Peter handles the situation that is really foreign to his every instinct as a Jew. Um, So... The first point is that God's revelation is the grounds for our conscience. God's revelation is grounds for our conscience. Uh, remember here the context. Peter and Cornelius receive twin visions. Cornelius receives an angel saying, fetch Peter. And, and Peter receives this dramatic vision of the sheet descending and, and filled with all kinds of animals, including unclean. And he's hungry and God says, take and eat. And, and of course, that's repulsive to him as a Jew, and as he's wondering about this vision, Gentiles knock on his door as if to say, this is what the vision is about. It's about people. It's about the Gentiles. God commands Peter, do not call common or unclean what God has cleansed. 
As the men knock on Peter's door, the door of Simon the Tanner, the Spirit says to Peter, Accompany these men without hesitation. I like that. Without hesitation. It's very similar to what Peter says in verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So here he's listened to the voice of the Spirit. I came without hesitation or objection. You can imagine, this is not an easy thing for Peter. He, he took Judaism very seriously. He was devout. He was brought up with others with him. Jews, uh, Jews many commentators say, in order to stand as witnesses, uh, Peter brought these other men with him to see Cornelius. Um, he brought other Jews in order to have them serve as witnesses. Because what's going to happen when Peter goes back to Jerusalem and encounters the circumcision party? Or, or what, what would Peter have said only a day prior before his vision, right? Like, this is a dramatic event. And yet, what informs Peter's conscience here? What, what animates his actions? Is it his personal opinions about Gentiles? I mean, just culturally, there's a certain ick factor built in at this point between Jews and Gentiles, uh, a certain amount of disdain. Was that what animated him? Was that what informed his conscience? Or was it a lengthy familial and traditional religious uh, tradition? For him, it was what God had said that informed his conscience, that caused him to do what he did. What God had said. He said Peter says to them, You yourselves know I shouldn't be here, and yet I came without objection. Why? Because God has shown me. Because God has shown me. So God's revelation and His revelation alone binds our conscience and ought to animate our actions. We see here already this principle that peace of conscience is by submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a principle really we can apply to our own lives, isn't it? We don't have to wonder, um, am I right? <laughs> am I wise enough to to do what I need to do? Because... In short, no, you're not, I'm not. In and of ourselves, we're not. But simple submission at the core is at the core of all wisdom. As Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second place we see this principle is in Cornelius' enthusiasm and anticipation for the word. Um, God's word is worth gathering over and worth sharing and worth being excited about. This whole story really builds anticipation. Um, Cornelius, it says, is waiting. He's waiting for four days. And while he's waiting, he's so excited, he gathers all his friends and family to hear this message from Peter. We might kind of say, I'd be excited too if I have an angel come and tell me, right? Uh, we'll find out that's not really what we should be excited about. Nonetheless, he is enthusiastic about his, this revelation. Perhaps a little bit too enthusiastic, because when Peter arrives, he bends to worship him, which Peter rebuffs immediately. But he realizes, he's aware, what's going to happen here in the preaching of this word from Peter is going to be life-changing for him, and not only for him, but for his family, his friends, his neighbors, uh, and P- Peter here is still a little bit unclear as to why Cornelius called for him. He says, I came without objection. Now, why did you send for me? 
<laughs> That's funny. He receives this grand vision from God. God says to go, but he, God never really told him what Pete, or Cornelius wanted. Why did you send for me? Cornelius account, uh, recounts the arrival of the messenger of God, and his anticipation continues to show here. He says uh, in verse 33, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We are all here in the presence of God. This is not just some lecture from from a a great man, right, who does miracles. We are here in the presence of God. We want to hear all you have been commanded by the Lord. So he has enthusiastic anticipation about hearing the word of God. We have here a couple of valuable principles about God's work uh, through his agents of revelation, through scripture. Uh, and the, fir- the first of those principles is that God does communicate through men. God communicates his gospel through mere mortal men. I mean, it's striking to me, God sent an angel to Cornelius, not to preach the gospel to him, but to tell him to go and get Peter to preach the gospel to him. Why not just get it out of the way? The angel of the Lord is right there. But he wants Peter. It's bizarre. It's because God has chosen to build his church in a particular way, through the plain preaching of ordinary men. Just why Peter says, stand up. I too am a man. I'm nothing special. I'm just a man sent from God. We find the same principle reiterated down in verse 39, where he says, And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. We are witnesses. We are here to testify about this. Expanding further in verse 40, he says, But God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. And yet again in this passage, Peter speaks of the witness, the witness of ordinary men who preach the testimony and revelation of God. Um, This time from those witnesses who came before, uh, down in verse 43, to him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. So here we have this grand testimony all produced by ordinary men called by God. God uses mere men to proclaim his word. And yet, it is God's word. It's no less God's word than if an angel was standing here speaking it. And that's Cornelius' attitude. Here we are, Peter. We're ready to hear a word from God from you. It's the same as what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, when he said, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we don't need an angel or some spectacular revelation from God to show up in our living rooms as we're doing our morning devotions for it to be a word from God, to be excited and have anticipation about what God's word might have to say to us. We have in our laps the breathed out word of God. We have the scriptures which are the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. 
We have the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. So we can be excited and anticipatory like Cornelius. We should read the Word with anticipation. What is God's Word going to say to me? Even as I'm very sleepy here at 6 a.m. in the morning, right? This is God's Word. The same is true of the Lord's Day, Lord's Day worship. We should have enthusiasm and anticipation. God is going to speak a Word today. I've got to tell my friends and family about this. Uh, in Sunday school, we're going to learn about Christ and, and the Apostles' doctrine about Christ. Praise God. In worship, we're going to hear God's words read aloud and preached. Words about what Jesus accomplished in the first century. Of course, the obvious is true, and I hate to devastate you brothers who've been up here, but we're not Spurgeon and Whitfield, obviously, around here. That's beside the point. The very words of God are being spoken and proclaimed today. The Apostles' Doctrine, the faith once for all delivered, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Uh, There's a good film uh, called Spirit and Truth, or Spirit and Truth, I think it's called. It's kind of about Reformed worship. And part of the film follows this pastor's family, and it's a church plant pastor. He's a young family, several young kids. And one segment, they're advocating honoring the Lord's Day um, and devoting the day to worship. And and at one point, they describe kind of waking their kids up, saying something like, uh, guess what, kids? It's the best day of the week. And then eventually, they come to the scene with music and and the family's dancing in slow motion in the living room, (laughs) excited about the Lord's Day. Uh, I'm here to tell you that's not what it looks like, (laughs) at least for me. And my initial reaction when I see that scene is to think, like, that's a bit rich, right? That's a bit much. But then again, I realize the the, the filmmakers aren't trying to portray reality. They're trying to portray an ideal to us, an idea that this is how we're supposed to feel about the Lord's Day. So, in fact, I approve of the scene after all. Because if we're being honest, the kind of enthusiastic buzz in the air uh, does accompany other things that we're excited about. I mean, it's hard as a high schooler to drag yourself out of bed, right? But if you're going skiing, it's super easy and really exciting. So it's not that the picture portrayed there is wrong. It's that my sin disrupts the right ordering of my affections. And that's not to say we should all get up and dance in slow motion in our living rooms on the Lord's Day, but simply there's a great joy to be had in delighting in the testimony of our Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That the prospect of hearing or reading the very Word of God should be met with anticipation, with enthusiasm. The third place we see this principle of peace and submission, and it's the place that's most plain, is um, in Peter's gospel presentation in his sermon, uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ here presented to the to, to um, Cornelius and his friends. Uh, there are several rich themes in Peter's message, uh, and likely this is probably a summary of what Peter may have said. But um, th- this gospel presentation is is presented and is suited to this major redemptive historical event. 
a um, couple of preaching books we read in, in seminary, uh, Brian Chapel or Haddon Robinson, they present these ideas. You have to have a proposition, a main central truth. So if Peter had been reading his Haddon Robinson, he would have had a proposition that when something like uh, Gentiles find peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. Now, the first theme in, in Peter's message here is that there's no partiality. The gospel has worldwide application. Uh, we've discussed really this point at length over the past few weeks. Um, but I, I worked with a man at Ace Hardware in Westcliff, and he was what I would call a hyper-conservative kind of fellow, politically speaking. <laughs> And a professing believer, but without a lot of grounding in the gospel or in doctrine. At the time, I was listening to a lot of James White. And if you don't know, James White is an apologist whose primary emphasis is on Muslims. And I was sharing with my friend that um, I was impressed by that James White had learned Arabic in order to engage with the Quran and with Muslims. Later that day, and I could tell he was upset. He, he kind of said in passing, by the way, I don't want to learn Arabic. <laughs> by which he clearly meant in context, Muslims are my enemy and they can all be damned, right? And we can fall into that same trap. Racial tensions, political and ideological dis, uh, differences, stigmas. Uh, we do have partiality in our hearts. I, I do. But God does not. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Here Peter's not giving the grounds uh, for the right standing before God and, and when he says anyone who he fears him and does what is right is acceptable um, the emphasis here is on anyone, anyone, anyone from any nationality, any ethnicity, any background may stand on good terms with God. God shows no partiality. And here we also see why the, the gospel has worldwide application. Um, and there's many reasons for that. But in, in context, it's because, and this is the second theme of the, the message, it's because the gospel preaches a worldwide Lord. The gospel goes to everyone because Jesus is Lord of everyone. Notice the little parenthetical comment here in verse 36. I think Daryl Bach got it right. He said, even though this remark is parenthetical grammatically, it is the theme of the speech conceptually. He is Lord of all. That's the theme of this speech. That's the theme, really, of the book of Acts. He is Lord of all. It's not just a pause for doxology there. This is in, in, integral to his argument as a whole. If Jesus is Lord, and he is, then he is Lord of all. And if he is Lord of all, which he is, then the call to bend the knee to this Lord is universal. Peter proceeds to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus as rooted in historical fact here. He says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 37, you yourselves know 
Whatever happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now we understand that the second person of the Trinity always had power, always had communion with the Holy Spirit. But uniquely as a man, as Jesus of Nazareth, he was anointed by the Spirit and with power in order that he might fill his divinely ordained offices, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus of Nazareth was to ascend the throne of his father David. His appointment was a divine attestation of his his appointment to the office of Lord, of ruler and king. Um, Just as we see at his baptism, that the voice was heard, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And again, Peter saw himself at the transfiguration. He witnessed the voice from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Jesus is divinely attested, attested by God. As God's chosen king, his power was manifested in undoing the effects of the fall and the works of the devil. As we see in the second half of 38, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Uh, Bach again here is helpful. He says this idea, doing good, um, he says it's a powerful one in the Greek context, pointing to a benefactor. Someone who does good for society. The term was applied to gods, heroes, kings, statesmen, philosophers, inventors, and physicians. So doing good is not just about he did good things, but this is a stately term. He is a benefactor to his people. A great king is a strong benefactor for his subjects. He watches out for their needs. He cares for them. He defends them. He protects them, even striking out and conquering their enemies. As the Shorter Catechism asks and answers, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So as we come into submission under this great Lord and King, we come to a mighty, benevolent King, a benefactor, someone who takes care of us, who has our best interests in mind, and who demonstrates his power by working mightily on our behalf. Now, as gentle a lamb as he can be with his beloved, he's also a fierce lion, against those who oppose him. Um, And that we see that he is appointed as judge in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Once again here, the universality of Christ's lordship comes to the forefront. Um, He's not only appointed judge over Israel, He's not only appointed judge over his people. He says he's appointed judge over the living and the dead. That means all people from all history and everyone in the future as well. The lordship of Christ is supreme. His lordship is expansive. It's universal. He is Lord of all. Which leads us here to the the third theme of the Peter's message, which is the good news of peace. Good news of peace. And first we see that there's peace with God 
Uh, we read in verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Good news of peace. This word peace is, uh, really has Hebrew roots in the word shalom. Um, and it, comprehensively it includes peace with God, peace with man, and peace within, peace of conscience. But peace with man and peace of conscience flow from peace with God. You can't have those two without the first one. Which is what we strive for in our flesh. We try to. I will heal the world around me. I can lay aside my own prejudices. I can do what's right in my own eyes. I can adopt sin as an identity and feel comfortable with that. Because I'm my own standard, I'm my own truth. But we need peace with God if we're ever going to have true peace with the world, or with pe- people around us in our relationships, and in our conscience. If the Lord Jesus is judge of all men, both the living and the dead. It should lead all men to ask, how can I be made right with God? The answer here is given in verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Um, Cornelius, as a God-fearer, had an awareness of the holiness of God. He'd come to trust Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, as the one true and living God. But now as a man kind of in the middle a man who lived on the border between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, he's pointed to the one and only name wherein forgiveness of sins is found. As we read in Acts uh, elsewhere, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among people by which we must be saved. Peace with God comes through one name, one all-important name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads then, secondarily, after peace with God, to peace with man. Um, the tragic thing about all the talk of kind of racial reconciliation in our time, in our place, is uh, it's never going to work. All the efforts to kind of reunite man under the steam of our own imagination and our own goodwill is just babble again. It's a noble vision, but built within all of our hearts is the awareness of the image of God that unites us. But that, that's been tainted by sin. And it's obvious it's been tainted because our world can't distinguish between sin and skin color. Because inclusion has come to mean acceptance of sin is valid. Because our world can't distinguish between uh, beast and human because we're all just byproducts of primordial chemistry accident. The only way the vision uh, of all men being reunited as one big happy family in Christ or is in Christ. I just love the way this passage illustrates the point that it's also arguing for, that the universal lordship of Christ implies worldwide preaching of the gospel. Even as 
Peter and Cornelius here are wrestling with sort of the awkwardness of two very different cultures coming together under one roof. The single family of Jesus. We come then to the final form of peace, peace of conscience. Um, when people from various cultures and viewpoints come together into a single family, tension is going to arise. How can we have peace of conscience when one, one brother is saying in one ear, it's okay, and the other brother is saying in the other ear, no, it's not. <laughs> That's what we experience many times. Suddenly, peace in Christ doesn't seem so peaceful. Peace among men in the family of God is, is on edge. I'm kind of foreshadowing here what's to come in the, the next few chapters. I'll cover it more in detail then, but I just want to direct us toward this point that I began with, that peace of conscience is found in submission to the absolute lordship of Christ. It solves that problem for us, because in Christ we are led both to obedience, a clear statement of what's expected of us, and freedom. So we can live out with clarity the maxim of Augustine, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So peace of conscience is rooted in the Lordship of Christ, as we see in Romans 14, 7 through 9. And just notice the similarity of language here to what we have read this morning. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For we live, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So this is all good news through Jesus Christ. Good news worth enthusiasm and anticipation. Um, In his name we find peace. Peace with God, peace with man, peace of conscience. May we learn to submit daily to the Lord of all. Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, and believe on his name for the forgiveness of our sin. Amen.